Hello and welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And this week, I'm very pleased to be joined by Kleis Fredriksson, who's founder and CEO of Liquid Wind, um, which is a company based in Sweden, which reduces CO2 emissions by producing a carbon neutral fuel, uh, leveraging renewable energy and CO2. And Kleis will tell us a bit more about it. I mean, I came across you, Kleis, first through Carbon Clean, who I know is one of the partners in your project. But why don't you tell us a little bit about you, first of all, your background and how you've arrived at this point in time, and then we'll pick up on Liquid Wind itself. Thank you. And thank you very much, Alex. And it's good to be here. And yeah, my name is Klaus, or Klaas, as we say in Swedish. I am a mechanical engineer by training. I've been running different companies now since 2000 roughly so it's that's coming up to 20 years uh, i did my first 10 years of career in in large companies primarily in tetra pack which i think might be known by people selling juice boxes or folding paper as we used to call it we folded paper and put milk inside uh, after having done that for quite a while i decided to try my own kind of my own uh, tricks or at least my own ideas which were slightly different and started in my first company in 2000. Have been through a couple of iterations and have arrived, as you call it, at this moment now. And this moment, I think we could say was 20, 2017 when we started Liquid Wind, after having tried both companies in, in the telecom space and in the energy space, in, in biogas and, and, and district energy solutions, and then eventually arrived at something that dealt more specifically with CO2 reduction. And, and I've been kind of chasing the CO2 reduction game for quite a while. Okay. And then, so liquid wind itself, I mean, as I say, I described it as using carbon dioxide emissions to then create, is it, I guess, green fuels, green methanol, I, I believe, is, is that the core product that you're after? Just tell us a little bit about that process. And yeah, the audience is a real mixture of people, so feel free to use quite layman's terms for this. Yeah, so the chemical, the chemical product is, is methanol, it's CH3OH, and, and we make it from electricity and carbon dioxide. And methanol, is, as people probably know, has been made for hundreds of years, and it's normally made from natural gas. So it's a fossil product, but, but we make it from electricity, and that should be renewable electricity, or if you talk to the EU, it's additional renewable electricity and from CO2, and we make it specifically from biogenic CO2. So CO2 that comes from an organic source. So we are the, the greenest of green electrofuels, and we say that our carbon reduction is 96%. And the 4% that we actually then emit comes from the wind towers that have to be built, the concrete that makes those will, will contain some CO2 uh, emissions and, and a few other things along the way. But it is really a, an electrofuel it's, it's becoming, I would say, very well known over the last five years because electrofuel or the interest in electrofuel has grown a lot. And it is, yeah, you, you start with electricity, you convert it to hydrogen, and then you use that hydrogen very quickly. And in our case, we combine it then with the CO2 to make the methanol. And it's really, hydrogen is kind of the enabler and, and the, the, the one that allows us to do the transition from electricity to, to a fuel or to a molecule. And then it happens to be methanol. We can then call it whatever we want. 
we can then put it into gasoline. So it can be a drop in into gasoline, or we can replace diesel or, or marine gas oil in the shipping sector, or we can upgrade it to kerosene for, for airline use or SAF as they call it now, or into to, uh, to regular gasoline, methanol to gasoline is a fairly well-known concept as well, as well. Or you can also go methanol to olefins and olefins is plastic. So it's really a way of making any kind of chemical product that we've so far have made from fossil sources from now a renewable source. And that's why we think it's so, so fundamentally interesting and, and changing or, or part of this energy transition that we go from electricity, which is not storable really in a practical way, into something which is completely storable. That's also why we see the big electric utilities getting quite excited about this thing because they can move the risk from the, from the electricity side to a, a storable product that we can essentially put in a tank and keep there for yeah, as long as you need to store it. And as you say, the methanol or green methanol itself has, you know, is, I know people talk about it a lot as being a building block of the chemical industry as, as much as a fuel. So there's the storage element, there's this idea, the concept that you're taking a renewable energy, converting it into something. But, but then at the same time, we're also saying those products, which are typically part of an energy and fossil fuel intensive process, are also cleaner and greener because of the, the reuse of CO2 as well. I think we should say, I mean, it can also be if we can use those renewable resources and if we can create more renewable sources to make them happen. It's important to remember, we cannot just take existing renewable electricity and use it to make methanol because whatever that electricity was used for before we took it, we'll now have to buy some other type of electricity. And therefore we and, and the EU are always promoting the fact that it will be additional so we, when we go out and, and make a deal with someone, they have to build a new wind farm or they have to build a new solar farm to supply us the electricity. And that's where we can kind of grow the pie and make a, a bigger, better planet eventually. Okay. And um, market size, market scale that you're looking at, I know at the moment your first uh, commercial scale plant is in Sweden. And I'm um, sorry, just remind me, I know we talked about this beforehand and some listeners may not know, but what other plants... And plans do you have in the shorter term in the next few years? Like, what's the opportunity you're seeing in the shorter term? Yeah, so we, we've announced that we will build six plants in Sweden slash Scandinavia by 2030. We have a standard size for those plants of 50,000 tons of methanol per plant. A 50,000 ton methanol plant will require roughly 70,000 tons of CO2 to make it as, as a building block, essentially, in, in the fuel that we make. Uh, we also work with co-developers. So we are looking for them to find sites in other countries outside of Scandinavia. And we have now three that we're working with quite actively, uh, one in Iberia. And so they, they will be then looking for ways of building a plant based on our design in, in, their, in their markets. And then we think we can go to 10 by 2030. Now, there are also other views of making, making potentially bigger plants quicker in, in further, further down in, in Southern Europe or, or Northern Africa. But in terms of what we know we can do and what we have announced today is the first six plants in, in Scandinavia. And where the very first one is in Örnsköldsvik in Övik on the Northeast coast of Sweden. 
and it's a CHP plant that we will be co-locating with and using their CO2 and, and their land and, and a lot of their other sort of facilities, including wastewater treatment and other sites. So it's, it's, it's quite a nice tight integration. And then we see after that, that we will go to pulp mills. We have quite a few pulp mills in Sweden that are well located close to a port with lots of CO2 and that we can get access to relatively low cost electricity to those pulp mills. Okay. And I, I'm sure, you know, one of the things that interested me and will interest people listening is often we hear with um, earlier stage companies that were or newer companies that the challenge is getting to scale. And there's this usually quite long process of demonstration to pilot to next stage to growth. You're going straight in at commercial scale. How, you know, I'm just kind of interested in how, how is that possible? Like how, how have you managed to, to kind of jump some of those earlier stages that often, uh, become the challenge yeah from the, from for an early early company I, I think we are we are a developer rather than an inventor we're not trying to invent some widget that does hydrogen in a faster better cheaper way we actually integrate what everybody else is doing and by putting that together we can then do it bigger and faster and i think a developer who develops wind farms today They've, they've been developing relatively big, big farms already from the start, almost from the get-go. It's, it's not, you could say that, you know, it's, it's difficult, but it's, it's not that we have to kind of go through the whole life cycle of the product. Our, our partners that we have then been fortunate enough to attract, they are doing all that work. So Siemens Energy is doing all the electrolyzer development. Halder Topser, who does the reactor for us, they are doing all the the, the development of their methanol reactors and have been in reactors for 80 years. And, and Carbon Clean, I guess, is, is a bit of a unique one because they're only, where they created 2009, they're only 10, 11 years. So they're the youngest of our partners. But by, by making ourselves, I guess, interesting enough to attract these, these more serious, more long-term players than ourselves, then we can then scale much quicker. So we, we have all, all the, the biggest companies with us, like if, if I was would be a, an oil company and, and a thousand times the size of what we are, we'd probably be working with the same supplier. And I think that's been really the, the beauty that the, the big suppliers have taken us seriously enough to, to dare to believe that we can together with them make it happen. I mean, Worley, 51,000, I think, employees, they are our EPCM. They could, of course, go choose and work with somebody else, which, of course, they're doing at the same time. But, but we are interesting enough for them to work with. And I think we've, we've said that our vision of doing 500 plants in 30 years is big enough for them to, to take the risk of being with us. And they've even taken the risk in terms of putting some money into us, in terms of investing into us, for the most part, and most of them have. And, and so now there's a, there's a very tight relationship that we, we will work closely with them as, as much and as far as we can, and they want to work closely with us. So I think that that is the the reason why we think we can scale quickly. We haven't done it yet. We're still just on on paper and PowerPoint, but, but we're 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 in making good traction. Okay, and that that kind of web, that network you've created of these different partners and technologies, is is that kind of that's what you're intending to replicate at each project, or do you envisage that different partners may be needed in different regions? How how might that unfold? It's a good question. I, I think the core will be replicated. 
because that's the whole idea that if the core stays the same, we're saving a lot of time and energy and effort on, on basic engineering, on negotiating with all these people, on, on, on figuring out that we like each other. All that is the same. Then, of course, there's a different PPA supplier in, in France than there might be in, in, in Sweden, and there might be a different EPC supplier as well, which we have to see, but we will keep as much of the core together as possible. So, so, so yeah, that, that's, that's really the way we see it. And even if we go and make hugely bigger plants, we still want to keep the same core together. I mean, we, we are in this together. And I think that's what we keep on saying that this, this is a team effort. It's not, it's not really a, how do you say, a, a buyer vendor relationship. It's, it's tighter than that. And, and that's, that's what's really been so, I find so amazing to see that these big companies, they are super, super helpful and super willing to work with us in, 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 in a commercial way, but also in, let, let's see how we can solve this together way. And, and there, is, there is a benefit, there must be a benefit from them in addition to selling their widgets, but there's an additional benefit to that in working with us. And I think that's really the beauty in, in what we're trying to do globally when we're trying to, to save the world, that, that we have to find these slightly kind of unintuitive relationships that make it work very well. Let's kind of build on that. So I'm sure when you go to a site, you know, a, a, the partner who's CO2 that you're going to be repurposing, reusing, I mean, for many companies, there is this push. They do know that they need to abate or remove CO2 one way or another. Is it is it a is it a big discussion about whether they should work with you or are there certain types of companies where it's more of a kind of oh this is a no brainer like how how have those kind of discussions been going what 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 are you learning or seeing from the kind of partner partnering with that site that facility I mean that that's a sort of on on a tricky spot there because those are the tricky ones because depending on on who you are and where you come from you have slightly different views I mean we've had big door opening from India, company, I will not mention it here, who wants to work with us. And, and, and we said no to them because they came with fossil CO2 and not biogenic CO2. So we said, as much as we'd love to work with you, well, we think India has a bit far and a bit early for us as a first project, but they're not biogenic. So that's why we don't want to go there. And then you go to a biogenic pulp mill who says, well, look, here, I have my biogenic source. I mean, you should want to buy this for me. And I said, well, maybe we need to find a slightly different deal than me buying from you. We have both a benefit in this. No, 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 you buy it from us. Otherwise, you can, you can go somewhere else. And, and we're, in, we're in an interesting transition that the guys that have the fossil stuff are happy to work with us, whereas the guys that have the biogenic stuff may not really be there yet or, or need to be there yet or need to see how this can benefit them. So... We've got some, some ways to still go on, on the carbon source side. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping we will make it more appealing to the big pulp mills, why they should be working with us. And, and I think it's coming only in the last six months, I've seen a big shift from where we were two years ago. So, and, and then that, that's kind of with many things that are going on right now, that there are shifts coming and, and it's really just a process for each individual person and then the company context that they're in, and then perhaps the industry context that they're in. And, and once they kind of come over the edge, then we'll have a lot of rush. And I think we're seeing that in, in many of these sort of sectors that we deal with, that people are now 
maybe we should maybe we should look at this more seriously right yeah i think yeah we we see we have seen a, a similar thing which is you know when, when i think back to conversations we were having in with clients and in the market perhaps 12 months ago it felt it felt more it just felt much earlier stage and people were sort of well, I'm going to take my time. I need to find my, whereas now, even just a year on, which isn't really that long at all in industrial terms, is it? Um, it feels like something has really switched, particularly in Europe. I think that would be fair to say, particularly in Europe. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. Europe, from what I mean, we, we only really see Europe actively. We see a bit of North America where it's also coming along. Uh, Asia, I couldn't, really, I couldn't really say. But yeah, there is a shift and it's coming. Even as the shift is there, it's not easy to make it happen because these are big deals. These are long-term deals. We need to make you know, agreements for the next, preferably 25 years. And, and that's a big way to go from no agreement to now I'm going to lock myself up with somebody for 25 years. But it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's about being patient. It's about, if we call it education or informing one another about how this can work jointly together. And then we're moving forward. I mean, there's no, there's no question in my mind that this will happen. And, and I mean, it needs to happen, it will happen. And it will happen in a way that it's actually gonna be beneficial for most of us. Not, not all companies will benefit, of course, but, but most of us will if, if we play it or, or if we manage it well and are willing to be open enough to, to work with each other and, and, and be, be close partners. And I think in, in, in our consortium group, as we call it there, it's been just fantastic to see the openness that we can have among each other. And now I think it's just like one level further would be customers and, and land slash host suppliers. If we can get them kind of in that same mind frame that we're really doing this thing together and we can then kind of churn out these plans relatively quickly, I think we'll all see the benefit from it. And the investment piece, the financing piece, do you have, um, in the same way that you're piecing together, you know, like the carbon cleans and the how the topsos, are you, are you seeing that it's, um, there's a possibility for the a same kind of financial package around this emerging, or is that changing with each potential project? Yeah, no, I think there is. I mean, we, we, we divide things between the, the parent company, the, the developer Liquid Wind, and, and Liquid Wind we financed in one way as, as the parent, the mother, whatever we call it. And then, I mean, the financing of the mother company is relatively small compared to what a project cost is. So, so it, it's in the project financing that we need to find the big players, the infrastructure funds or our pension funds or what have you. And they are definitely coming forward as well. I mean, we, we see them, they are there, they're keen to go. But this is a first, a first commercial scale project of this type. It takes a while to get this right. And, and it will probably take, who knows, one, two, three, four, five of these projects until the rest of the industry or all the industry will be comfortable in doing this the way we do wind financing today. But that that will have to come. And of course, if if we have our if we have our co-developer partner who's now developing a, we call them flagships, uh, a project in Spain, and we have a partner that has done the first one here up in Sweden, it's just as, as easy for them to finance the next project in Spain as it was to finance it in Sweden. It's not a huge difference there. So yes, we will be working together with the same like financing partners if we can, so that they can also work in multiple projects. Because for them, it's the same story. If we've done one, we've gone through those 12 or 18 months of learning, Number two can be done in half the time or a third of the time, and that's a lot of saving. So it, it's it's anything like 
if we can do more modularized or more cookie cutter, whatever we call it, is better. So long-term relationships, we do multiple projects together, is always better and cheaper. And, and that's what we definitely what we look for. And manages the risk, doesn't it, from that investor's point of view? I, I guess if they can see that, oh no, we've we've seen how this group works together. Yeah, that that's that manages their risk, uh, you know, further than a whole new setup would. Uh, so yeah. Absolutely. I just uh a Japanese investor yesterday on the call who says we want to do one, you know, test. And once we're comfortable with that one, then we can do many more. And, and it doesn't matter where we do them. But it, it's important for us that we have that that reference case somewhere. Right? Just kind of coming back to your experience, I'm really struck by the fact that um quite a lot of the entrepreneurs that we talk to are often have been serial entrepreneurs all their lives. You've had this balance of both corporate experience at the start of your career and then more recently. Um, 20 odd years of uh, entrepreneurship. I'm, I'm wondering what what you think your background lends, you know, how are you finding that that combination of experience is helping your work? And just, you know, what lens does it bring to you? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. But I guess it's, it's always been for me, an interest in finding kind of a smarter or a better or a cheaper way of doing things, maybe not always cheaper, but maybe more kind of smarter and more practical way of doing things. And we did that partly in, in Tetra Pak as well. I mean, we had quite a lot of flexibility to be innovative within, of course, a certain box. So, I mean, I think that's one part, but I also think now when we see the big industrialists that are coming into energy or are into energy and they wanna be part of this transition, I think that's where we have an interesting time coming. And if I have kind of, worked with a company with 20,000 people and somebody comes from another company with 20,000 people. It doesn't really worry me too much that they work for a big company. So I think that mix of, of, of big and small has been quite useful. And, and in, my, in my Tetra Pak days, I worked, in, I worked in Hong Kong, in Hungary, in Canada, in Switzerland, and in Sweden. So I've kind of done the international scene as well. And I think in, in, in today's age, also the this energy field that we're getting into, it's completely international. So we have to be kind of in anywhere and, and go to wherever the, the timing is right for the specific market. And, and then the pulp mill is kind of funny for me because with Tetra Pak, we bought all the paper from the same pulp mills that we're now trying to get the, the CO2 from. So it's it sort of comes comes around somewhat. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We, we I know um, when we're sort of researching content for events or reports or whatever, often the, the question that will come or the discussion point that comes around an earlier stage venture is, is to do with, well, can they work with a big company? Do they understand the mechanics of a big corporation and how they're going to integrate? And I, I guess that's part of, you know, you are, you are one person within this whole ecosystem you're building, but but at least you under you understand that and you understand the kind of cultural nature of big companies and, and probably how to navigate them. And that, that must be a shortcut to some extent, I would imagine. Yeah, I guess I guess it is. And I mean, the people we have on our team are, are quite a few people, are large company people now. We have, mm. with, with sort of starting now in August, we're 17 people and, and uh, three of them come from the biggest energy company in Denmark. Another one comes from the biggest oil company. One comes from the big German energy company. So... So I think we, we've tried to find the entrepreneurial people from those companies that were either kind of ready to do something different or already, already doing something different that they come and join us. So that we are, we are clearly not sort of a, a bunch of startup 
if it's 25 year olds that are trying to make this happen. We, we've, we've been around, I mean, our, our in-house legal counsel has, has done the biggest energy projects in Asia that have been done with the big American law firm. So, so yeah, we've got, we've got a good mix of, of being kind of small and, and flexible and, and can move quickly. And, and yet I think have yeah, enough experience to, to, to play the game. I mean, we're, I don't know how many of us that are actually over 50 and we're in a startup, right? And then I think we have the 50 plus and then we have maybe probably about half between there are 50 plus and then are 50 minus right in the company. And it, it's, it works well. And we have also good mix of cultures, good mix of male, female in, in both the, the company itself and in the board. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, what do we call it? Di diversity is, is really kind of in what we try to do. And, and so far, proving to work very well. Okay, well then coming back to this first facility, and you mentioned northeast, northeast of Sweden, what, what stage are you at um, now? And yeah, let's start there. And I, I do have a question about kind of price comparison as well of fuels that, that will come out of that. So but let's start with where, what stage you're at on that particular project. So we, we have two important things going on there. One is the basic engineering of designing the plant in connection with the facility and the permitting application. On, on the basic engineering, we've done 22, we're in the 22nd week of the 40 weeks of basic engineering. So those 40 weeks will be done towards the end of November, and then we'll have our plant kind of complete and, and ready to go. And thereafter we can get into detail engineering and procurement. Uh, our permitting application is, is ongoing, as in all the process you need to do to get to the actual application. We will hand in the application on September the 23rd, and then we, we anticipate getting an approval within six months. So we've set our, our, our goal to have a financial close at the end of March next year, the end of March 2022. And when that happens, then essentially we, we sell the project to the investor who then deploys all the capital that we need to actually build the facility. And the idea is then that we build it from, from 22, sort of the spring of 22 to, to early 24. We have a, a, a rush that we try to get it done by the end of 23, but we think that might be a bit tight. So we're saying first half of 24 is a realistic time for us to deliver methanol. And in terms of offtaker, what's your sort of sense of offtake for, from that project? So offtaker will be a shipping company. We are in discussions with, with a few different potential offtakers, but we have and are very focused on being a marine fuel replacement. So it will be a big shipping company. We are, as, as you know, slightly higher price than the fuel that they are buying today. So we're still working on how that is going to come together. We have an application into the Innovation Fund, the EU ETS Innovation Fund. If we get that one, we can lower the price of the fuel quite considerably. And we will only know that in November or December. So we would like to make the deal before that happens so that we know for sure that there will be a project, whether or not we get those funds. And without without the funding, what what's the kind of comparison of fuel uh, costs from from what you would be producing versus a a traditional product? And and obviously, I think everybody listening knows that as as these things scale and the markets build, obviously prices come down. But in that kind of first phase, what what's your um, assessment of the differential? 
So, so I think we all know that shipping fuel is the cheapest fuel in the world. And, and fossil shipping fuel is, is really at the bottom of the pile. And, and there is non-fossil shipping fuel, a, a few of them, and, and, and they have been tested. And, and compared to those, we are just a little bit higher. But compared to the fossil shipping fuel, we are I mean, at least two times higher. But if we start to look at, at land-based fuel, I mean, if, if you look at in, in Sweden today, the reduction quota and what we pay for a liter of gasoline. I mean, we can produce our methanol energy equivalent to that gasoline at the same price as the pump price is today. Now, the pump price normally has a lot of tax, at least based on the fossil side, but the non-fossil is, is untaxed. So, so if we were to sell, you know, liter by liter to, to you as a consumer, we could do that already today. But since we need to finance ourselves with project financing, where essentially the entire facility that we build is bought by one off-taker over a 10-year period. We need to, or they would like to get such a significant discount, and then we're comparing to the lowest of the low. So what I'm trying to say with a lot of words is that we will be significantly higher than fossil fuel, but maybe that is not the comparison you should make. What you should compare with is renewable fuel in today's world. We are already gonna be there at a reasonable price point with that, if we sold that land, if we're selling at sea, we're still a little bit higher. And as a as a shipper, I mean, they they must well. I know they have more and more uh, clients. You know, the industrial clients, other corporate clients who are looking for uh, carbon neutral shipping anyway. So this is all part of their that the evaluation they make is obviously partly on the cost of the fuel, but it's also on what is the value to us of being able to ship using carbon neutral fuel. Absolutely, and, and I think that's what we're seeing in the container space. I mean, I think we know the eco delivery product at Mashcans. I mean, they're charging a premium and they have customers charging a premium, are, are paying a premium for that. And I think we will see a lot more of that, whether it's a customer volunteer, volunteer premium or it's a carbon tax on the shipping side. That will come and container ships will come probably first, cruise ships will come soon thereafter, and then you have all the bulk carriers where there might be not that much in, that interest we would have to see. But I think once, once we get over a threshold at some point where it's like okay to pay a bit more, I mean, it's okay to pay carbon offsets when you're flying to, to the Canary Islands, whatever it might be, right? Then the, the, the inflow of money will be quite significant because it is not so much per Nike shoe or, or per container that you would have to pay extra. And I think that's what, what the container guys are seeing, that they, they can make this thing work. And if we can now trace our fuel all the way from the source, we have this, this wind farm that we're tracing from, we're capturing from, and this carbon source that we're capturing from, and bring it all along and say, you were shipped by fuel that was made from sort of the, the forest from Sweden, and you, you will be happy to pay a premium. So, so we need to go through that, I mean, but we're just not, we're not really there yet. I mean, some, some, some of the shipping companies are pushing very hard. Others are, of course, kind of going the other way. But I think collectively and, and, and as an industry, we are moving in that direction and we will get there. And, and we will be, we believe we will be the, the lowest cost you can do it because we are spending a lot of effort into digitizing the way we design our facilities so that when we do the next one, it will be a carbon copy or a digital copy of the first one. We are doing all that we can to get the energy source to be as low cost as possible by doing the long-term contracts and going to the right place. 
and we have the, the best carbon capture companies helping us reduce the cost of carbon capture. So we're doing all these things to be really smart in the way we do it. So if we can do it cheap enough, we don't think anyone else can do it either. And then it becomes sort of more up to the ship to say, are we going to go green or not? And if we are, well, liquid wind is the place to go. They, they can help us make that work. All right. Well, thank you uh, for talking us through that. In wrap up then, it sounds like kind of the next few months are obviously at this key phase of is there going to be innovation funding or not? But what else? what else feels like the kind of significant markers of the rest of 2021? What's important for you in the next few months? Well, I think it's it's what you're saying. We need to get the off-taker. Mm. It needs to be firmed up. We need to get the infrastructure fund that is going to pay for the facility. We need some additional funding in the in the mother company or the parent company. So we got to go to those. We got to complete the, the basic engineering. Then we also want to find two or three additional facilities or for, for the next one. So we will actually start our flagship two already this fall. But those are the things we have. And then, then we're hiring I mean, quite a few more people. We need to get them kind of in, integrated and, and, and working and, and functioning and being productive so that we really have a, a, a facility that can produce these things multiple times. Because we think that in, in two years from now, there's going to be just an incredible boom of people that want to have more fuel and more facilities. So it's, yeah. I think every every six months has been crucial. Now it's it's a crucial one to say we we can get to that financial close with or without, but preferably with the innovation fund, and then we can take off. I think the innovation fund will save us and the industry a certain amount of time because we can go now go faster or sooner, or or it will be easier to get the rest of the financing. We we, we will all get 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 there eventually, but it will help us to get there a bit faster. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much. It's been, uh, yeah, really interesting to, to hear more about both this first project, but also how how you're piecing together these different components and partnerships into a replicable uh, journey. So uh, look forward to hearing more as you progress this year. Thank you. Thanks very much.